Last week, I talked about how we can deal with desire, clinging, craving, or attachment. I mentioned a couple of reflections that can be used to reduce strong forms of attachment or clinging. You might remember these were the reflections on impermanence and the reflection on non-beauty, asuba, or loathsomeness of the body. And beside that, I also mentioned some methods of how to deal with uh, anger, no, sorry, desire and attachment, like changing the object or avoiding the object or using a strong determination. Of course, all these reflections or uh, methods should only be used when the most direct and most beneficial way of observing desire and attachment have been applied, but uh, proves to be fruitless or not to be working in that particular situation or case. And so today I want to speak about how we can deal with the opposite, deal with anger, aversion, ill will, hatred, and so on. Anger, aversion, ill will, hatred, irritation, frustration are all different expressions of dosa. That's the Pali word for it. And it must have been two weeks ago that I spoke about the gang of three. Those who were here, you remember, that's greed, hatred, and delusion. And last Tuesday, Carol spoke about one of the members of the gang of three, namely delusion. So, dosa, all different forms of aversion and hatred, is an incredibly harmful force that, only, that not only brings much harm and suffering to others, but also to ourselves. If we hurt another person with physical injuries, uh, then that person suffers greatly. However, by doing that, we hurt ourselves even much more because with that act, we actually create unwholesome karma. And that in turn will affect our well-being sooner or later. The Buddha always encouraged people not to harm any other being, not to kill other beings. But at one time, King Saka, king um, of one of the Deva realms, approached the Buddha and asked whose killing the Buddha would approve. And actually the Buddha said 
that he approved the killing of anger. <laughs> so if you go about killing anger, it's all right. <laughs> and referring to the fact that anger is primarily harmful for the angry person, the Buddha said that like a mountain avalanche, anger crushes the angry person. Besides giving discourses or advice to his monks, nuns, or to lay people, sometimes the very way the Buddha was living his life was a teaching, a very profound one. And so how he was dealing with anger or another angry person uh, is shown in this story. One time the Buddha was uh, living in Rajagaha and there was one Brahmin living in Rajagaha and one of his clansmen had gone forth under the Buddha. He had become a monk. Uh, under the Buddha. And so that Brahmin was very angry and displeased. And so in that mood of being upset and angry, he went to see the Buddha. And as soon as he arrived there where the Buddha was, he reviled and abused him with rude and harsh words. The Buddha listened calmly and when he had finally finished, the Buddha asked him, how is it, Brahmin? Do you sometimes receive visits from friends or guests in your house? The Brahmin was a bit perplexed by this question. And he said, yes, yes, sometimes I get visits from friends or relatives. And the Buddha asked further, when they come, do you, do you offer them some food or some snack? And again the Brahmin said, yes, yes, I do. And the next question the Buddha asked was, well then, Brahmin, if your visitors do not accept what you offer, to whom does it uh, belong or with whom uh, rests the food? And the Brahmin said, well, if they do not accept it, then the food remains with me. And so the Buddha said, well, Brahmin, in the same way, I do not accept your angry and abusive words. I leave them with you. In this story, the Brahmin's anger was triggered by the fact that one of his clansmen uh, had become a monk under the Buddha. That Brahmin was not happy at all that his clansmen had gone, so to speak, to the other side. And so his anger was directed at the Buddha. And his anger grew so strong and powerful that he could no longer contain it. He had to vent it to the source of his anger. 
which for the Buddha was, which for the Brahmin was the Buddha. And so therefore, he went to the Buddha and let loose this tirade of angry, abusive and harsh words. Let's consider how the majority of people would react in such a situation. Most likely, most people would retaliate with angry and rude words. That's the habitual and ingrained reaction of an untrained mind. Because it seems so obvious, the angry and harsh words of the other person are more than enough to react with an equal amount of angry and abusive words. The untrained mind, or in other words, that's the ego, the ego finds it more than justified to give back the negativity that it has received. And in doing so, the ego, or the sense of ego, is boosted. And it derives so much satisfaction from the fact that it could defend its position. So, this Negative mental states of aversion, anger or hatred are ego boosters and that's ma that makes it so difficult to abandon them. The ego does not let easily go of them. On the contrary, it uses all its devices to hold on to anger, hatred and ill will because this is what the ego feeds on. If it would easily let go of it, then the ego would lose its feeding ground, which means that would be its death. In the case of the Buddha, however, his sense of self as an independently existing entity was no longer existing. And so hearing the angry words of the Brahmin he didn't identify with these words. He was clearly aware that this was just a verbal manifestation of the Brahmin's anger. He knew that the anger had nothing to do with himself, but solely with the Brahmin's dissatisfaction about the fact that one of his clansmen had changed to the other side. So, this would be the ideal case to deal with anger, namely, not to get angry at all in the first place. So then we wouldn't need to deal with it. <laughs> but, unfortunately, the fact is that aversion, gross or subtle forms, does arise quite often throughout the day. So like in the case of dealing with desire and attachment, the first and most beneficial way to deal with these aversive states of mind is to observe them, to be aware of them, to fully acknowledge them.
That means that we should direct our attention to the aversion or to the anger in our mind and simply note that anger is present in the mind. To be aware that the mind is accompanied by anger or aversion. What triggered the aversion or the object causing aversion to arise is not so important. We, didn't, we need not pay attention to that. Rather, we should stay with the actual experience of anger or ill will, hatred. And so, if we are aware of that anger or that ill will, that uh, hatred, when we really look at it, when we observe it, when we feel it, then we come to see the unpleasant nature of aversion. And so we come to see that it is harsh or that it is rough. It's burning, it's consuming the mind and also the body. It's also blinding. We don't see clearly anymore when the mind is overcome with aversion. In the Abhidhamma, anger, aversion, dosa is described as burning up its own support, which is the body and the mind in which the anger, aversion arises. And on the physical level, this is very obvious. If a person gets very angry, then we can see that that person's face becomes red, brightens up, <laughs> and also the blood vessels start to swell up and stick out. Or uh, that person starts sweating. It's a truly ugly sight. <laughs> I remember so well uh, at school, one of my teachers at primary school, he was of a short temper and got angry every now and again. And then he would kind of get very angry and upset and his face was getting very red and his veins would stick out. Oh, very terrible sight. So anger Aversion is burning up its own support, the body and the mind. And actually in Burma, I heard it many times that one of the ill effects of anger or any form of aversion is that a person ages faster because this fire is uh, also burning up the body and so the aging process happens much faster or uh, sets in earlier, it's more visible. So and when we stick to observe uh, the aversion or the anger, when we are mindful of it, 
Then we also come to see that this aversion is not as solid as we had imagined it. It's not kind of a solid block of aversion that has arisen in the mind and then occupies uh, the whole mind. Rather, we come to see that aversion or anger has different textures, uh, so to speak. Uh, we also might uh, see that there are waves of aversion arising and disappearing. Or it's like little bubbles of aversion coming up and then pop, popping up. Or we can see it as an ever-changing flow of aversive mind moments. And so shining the light of awareness on aversion or anger can actually be very interesting and fascinating when we are really interested in seeing what is. However, if we are caught in the notion that anger or aversion is bad and needs to be pushed aside or needs to be repressed, then we miss to recognize the true nature of aversion. In the course of my meditation practice, I had one particular period of being faced with a repeated uh, strong aversion. It was many years ago in the center in Burma when I meditated and that was during the hot season. I was at the forest center and basically my job was taking care of the foreigners and translating for them. And so in the hot season, when the temperatures are really boiling hot, not many, many foreigners come to Burma to meditate. And so that was the time for me to meditate. <laughs> and I developed some problems or my varicose veins started to become very, very painful. And so I could no longer sit cross-legged in the meditation hall. And so I had to sit in my kuti with the back against the wall and the legs stretched out. And next to my kuti, there was another building. Uh, and downstairs uh, at that time, there was an old Sayado staying there and he had two novices, which, among other things, also had to look after this old Sayadaw. And they also had to study to learn the scriptures. And in Burma and other Asian countries, learning, studying, basically means memorizing texts. And this is done memorizing aloud and really aloud. <laughs> and so these two novices being over there, memorizing their text, sometimes uh, shouting at the top of their lungs because they wanted to outdo the other one being louder than their friends. I was sitting meditating, hearing, 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 hearing. <laughs> well, that wasn't so bad. I could deal with that, but then, in the free time, 
the novices went outside playing and across the path there was a shed which stored some wood and uh, some sheets of tin which were used as roofs. And so in the free time these two novices were just having fun and a great time playing around in the shed and taking pieces of wood and banging <laughs> against other pieces of wood and taking sticks and banging against the sheets of tin. And that really triggered <laughs> lots of aversion. Because my ego started coming up saying, you know, this old Sayadaw, he knows he is in a meditation center and he knows it should be a quiet and peaceful place so that the meditators can uh, meditate and make progress in the meditation. Why doesn't he say anything to these novices being so loud and noisy? Or then saying, um, it's not fair to have novices in the meditation center, they should stay in their learning monastery. There they can shout and uh, memorize their texts. And anyway, you know, the foreigners and myself, we have come from the West, come so from so far and putting up with the heat and the mosquitoes and <laughs> so on and on and on and on and on for many days. And then I would catch myself, oh, anger, anger, anger. But the next day, I would get swept away again by the ego, justifying itself and saying it's not right and so on. But because it went on for many, many, many days, then um, slowly I started to notice that this anger, this aversion, was actually burning my mind, my body, that I really uh, suffered from it, that it was painful. And so with time, this harsh and burning nature of aversion became so painfully obvious that slowly it dawned on my mind that this was not a good thing to hold on to. I mean, in retrospect, this seems so obvious and logical, but being stuck in that uh, aversion, it was not obvious at all. So the thick veil of delusion <laughs> was clearly there, not recognizing what's what actually going on. And so then it was that I started to see the anger like this uh, mountain avalanche that crushes the angry person. And anyway, my anger and aversion did not cause the novices to become more quiet. <laughs> and they probably didn't even know that they pressed somebody's button. So the direct awareness of an anger and aversion is the first way to go about dealing with uh, aversive mental states. But at times 
we don't have the mental strength to engage directly or the situation is not appropriate. And so then we can resort to some alternative ways of dealing with aversion, hatred or ill will. There are a few reflections that help weaken aversion or hatred. And the well, most well-known is uh, metta, developing thoughts of loving-kindness. Metta is a wholesome state of mind that wishes for the welfare and happiness of all living beings. I think all of you are familiar with this practice. When there is genuine metta, then it is impossible uh, for anger to be present at that moment. Metta and aversion, anger, are mental states that are mutually exclusive. They never can arise at the same time. And so by cultivating thoughts of loving-kindness, we train the mind to rather wish others well than falling prey to aversive and angry thoughts. And with the repeated practice of loving-kindness for a certain period of time, that may be weeks, months, or even years, then the mind naturally uh, inclines uh, more towards kindness and love. And so in this way, then the negative forces of aversion and anger gradually weaken and become less. Let's say your neighbor has just planted a tree next to the fence of your garden. And knowing that the tree, when it has become a big bit bigger, will cast a shadow into your garden, you get upset and angry. But then maybe you remember that anger is not such a good thing to nourish, and you remember that metta can be used as an antidote for anger. And so you try to cultivate thoughts of loving-kindness for your neighbor, acknowledging that he or she also simply wants to be happy and does not want uh, to suffer. Although it might be a bit difficult in the beginning, after a while it's possible to actually feel some genuine thoughts of kindness towards him or her. As the world is not lacking in cruelty, there are also situations when it becomes a much bigger challenge to cultivate metta, and when it's a much bigger challenge, challenge not to suc succumb to thoughts of anger or aversion. And this is especially so when tremendous harm pain or significant loss has been caused. A 
few weeks ago, I happened to open one of the tricycle magazines that I found in the teacher house. And there I found an article uh, about Venerable Mahagosananda, who died earlier this year. Through his years of practice, he knew very well that the actual danger or enemy is within. And he knew that it is the negative mental states that are actually causing so much trouble and misery. Many, many years ago, Venerable Mahagosananda went into the refugee camps where thousands of Cambodian refugees had fled from the terrible Holocaust uh, conducted by uh, the Khmer Rouge. Every family had lost children, spouses, parents to the ravages of genocide. And many homes and even temples had been destroyed. Venerable Mahagosananda announced to the refugees that there would be a Buddhist ceremony the following day, and all who wished to attend were welcome. Since Buddhism had been desecrated by Pol Pot, people were curious if anyone would go. But then the next day, over 10,000 people gathered in the meeting ground. Venerable Mahakosananda sat for some time in silence on the platform that was erected in front of the crowd. And then he started to chant the invocations that normally uh, are chanted at the beginning uh, of a Buddhist ceremony. And only hearing that, people started weeping. They had been through so much sorrow, so much difficulty. And just to hear the sound of these familiar words again was so uh, precious to them. Many of these people wondered what Venerable Mahagosananda was going to say. What could one possibly say to such a group of people? What he did next was to begin uh, repeating this famous verse from the Dhammapada. Hatred never ceases by hatred. By love alone it will cease. This is an eternal law. Over and over, Venerable Mahagosananda chanted this verse. And remember, these were people who had as much cause to hate as anyone uh, on earth. Yet, as he sat there repeating this verse again and again, one by one, the refugees started to join him. And very soon, it was a huge crowd of thousands of people chanting, hatred never ceases by hatred. By love alone, it will cease. This is an eternal law. 
Having Venerable Mahagosananda as a strong leader, the people could join these words. And they must have known intuitively that this was true and, to, and the only way to heal their deep wounds. Although the rational mind still wanted uh, to be angry with Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge. Another set of reflections takes into account that aversion, anger, or hatred are first and foremost hurting us, and in this way creating further causes for misery to arise. It's like taking hot ashes and throwing them at your enemy, but because the wind is blowing against you, the hot ashes fall back on you. So one of these reflections goes along the lines of, if another person has insulted us or inflicted harm to our body, then we should reflect that by doing so, the other person has actually defiled his or her own mind by that unwholesome action. And so that unwholesome action, that unwholesome karma, is going to give rise to suffering sooner or later for that person. And so then we should reflect not to let ourselves be affected by that person's foolishness, by that unwholesome deed. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be stupid to follow his stupidity and let the mind succumb to anger? Or another line of reflection goes like this. All things are impermanent, are momentary. Both that person's body and mind are momentary too. And the thoughts and the body with which the wrong was done are no, no longer existing right now. A certain thought, together with a certain mass of physical phenomena, did some wrong to me, but then it disappeared then and there, giving, uh, making way for succeeding moments of mind and material phenomena uh, to appear. And so now, with which ones do I get angry? With the mental and physical phenomena that did the wrong, but have already vanished and passed, which are not existing any longer? Or am I getting angry at the present physical and uh, mental phenomena of that person, which actually don't? Um, do me wrong right now. Another reflection, if our anger or ill will has an obvious external source, such as the noisy neighbor, the bad weather, the blocked road, and so on, then we can reflect 
that we suffer as a result of our previous karma. And so if we get angry on account of this, then actually we only accumulate more uh, unwholesome karma with that anger. And again, um, when this karma ripens, gives effects, again it's us uh, who have to suffer. Another kind of reflection, if we get angry with another person, we can ask ourselves the following questions. And these questions are based on dividing a person in different ways, like uh, seeing the person as the five aggregates or seeing the person uh, as a manifestation of the elements or seeing it, seeing that person's body as the 32 parts of the body, which I mentioned last week. So then we can ask ourselves, am I angry with the skin of this person? <laughs> am I angry with the liver of this person? Am I angry with the urine of this person? Or am I angry at the blood of this person? Or am I angry with the aggregate of feeling of this person? Am I angry with the perception of that person? Or am I angry with the earth element found in this person? Am I angry of, with the air element found in this person? Am I angry with the consciousness element found in this person? When we ask these questions, it becomes so obvious that it is so ridiculous to be angry with phenomena that are completely impersonal. If we could be angry with the self or a soul of the person, then that would somehow justify our anger. But to be angry with phenomena that lack any inherently existing entity is not only futile, but also shows a great deal of delusion. <laughs> so these reflections, or some of them, including the uh, meta practice, can be done as part of our practice. We can take a few minutes in the early morning sitting meditation and develop metta or, and, and or do some other reflections. Or it can do at any other time during the day. And also at home in our day-to-day -day life, these reflections can be very helpful in dealing with the manifold challenges that we face throughout the day. Now, now I want to mention a few methods for dealing with aversion and anger uh, more directly. 
So one of these methods is to change the object or to shift one's attention. So when encountering an object that might cause anger or aversion to arise, or if that aversion or anger has already arisen, then we can ignore that object and intentionally change the object. So then our attention is shifted to a wholesome object. Traditionally, it is said that one should reflect on the attributes of the Buddha, the Dhamma, or the Sangha, or to reflect on any other wholesome object. This can include one's acts of generosity or the fact that we are keeping our precepts pure or the fact that one practices meditation or that one goes and uh, works or helps in a monastery or a meditation center or even helping out in a hospice or in an old folks home and so on. We also could shift our attention to the experience of the breath or to any distinct but more or less neutral sensation in the body. And so having shifted our attention, we just try to uh, be with that object, be it the experience of the breath, sensations in the body, or with any uh, of the reflections. To develop uh, metta, loving-kindness, can also be used in the context of changing the object. So if we get caught in negativity, then we simply let go of that and switch the mind to metta. As good as we can, we try to ignore that which causes or has caused a negative mental state to arise and trying to turn our full attention to the cultivation of loving-kindness. Instead of uh, metta, the mind can also be occupied with any of the other types of concentration meditation. This can also be the others of the Brahma Viharas, like compassion, sympathetic joy, or equanimity. Then another way to deal with uh, aversion, hatred, ill will, and so on, is to simply avoid that which usually leads to aversive mental states. The untrained mind has a natural tendency for negative reactions when coming face to face with displeasing objects. On my very first uh, meditation retreat with my teacher, Saido Ujanaka, um, that was in Australia, there was an Asian woman who was among the meditators 
and she made some very strange noises while eating. The noises were somehow connected through her breathing, but they were so strange that it was impossible for me to make such kind of noises, which I tried when I was in a uh, secluded uh, place. I simply could not produce that kind of noise. Um, anyways, her noises while eating were greatly irritating me. And after having a few, a few meals in her vicinity, I decided um, that I had to remove myself uh, from that noise. And so I sat in the far corner of the dining hall, being far away from her. And so not hearing the noises anymore, um, I did not get irritated anymore. So I simply uh, avoided that. Of course, I didn't tackle the problem at its root, dealing with my own aversion. But in that retreat, I had plenty of other opportunities <laughs> to observe and watch aversion and ill will. Or in your daily life, if you find it very stressful to do your shopping in a big shopping center with all the assaults on, on your senses, like the music, the mess of ads and promotions, and then the people maniacally filling their shopping carts. So finding that very stressful and irritating, um, maybe then it would be better to avoid uh, the big shopping center and do your shopping in a small local grocery store, maybe paying a little bit more, but at least getting back home in a different state of mind. <laughs> Another way of dealing with aversion uh, is to use a determination. Knowing what usually triggers aversion to arise, we can determine that the next time we encounter such an object or person or situation, we will not allow any aversion or anger to arise. This is a bit a tough one, <laughs> but with a really heartfelt and strong determination, it can actually be done. Because many times it's unavoidable to come in contact with persons, objects or situations that trigger our aversion or anger to arise. And so in a quiet moment, we can take some time and reflect, reflect for example, on the story of the Buddha, how he dealt with the angry and abusive words of the Brahmin. And so then we can determine that we are not going to allow anger to arise when faced with a challenging situation. And in this way, anger or aversion may arise less often or less strongly.
course, there are different levels of determination. Initially, our determination may not be as wholehearted and strong, but later on we might be able to um, create a much stronger and more powerful resolve that we actually can uh, stick to. One Tibetan refugee was in a Chinese gulag for 18 years. When he finally escaped and met the Dalai Lama, he told him that during these 18 years he encountered a few dangers. And the Dalai Lama thought that these were external dangers, dangers to his body, to his life. But the refugee then said that these dangers were the moments when he feared to lose compassion towards the Chinese and to become caught up with anger towards them. To finish this talk, I want to tell the story of the anger-eating demon. This story is based on a sutta found in the Samyutta Nikaya. Once there lived a demon who had a very peculiar diet. This demon fed on the anger of others. And as his feeding ground was the human world, there was no lack of food for him. <laughs> this demon found it quite easy to provoke a family quarrel or uh, some national or racial hatred. And even to stir up a war was not very difficult for him. And whenever he succeeded in causing a war, he had a great feed, feast. Because once a war starts, anger and hatred multiplies. And even people who are usually quite loving and friendly uh, can become full of anger and hatred. So in those times, the demon's supply of food um, was plenty. And so sometimes he was overeating himself. And after having overeaten, then he had to restrain himself in eating not too much and just nibbling a little bit on resentment that he still found. So this anger-eating demon was quite successful. And as it can happen with successful persons, he became rather overbearing. And sometimes he even got a bit bored. And so he thought, why shouldn't I try it with the gods, with the devas? And so he decided to try it with the devas of the Tavatimsa Deva realm, the gods of the 33, ruled by King Saka. Although they were devas, not many of them had actually eliminated all forms of anger or aversion. Although they didn't have the gross forms of 
anger or aversion anymore, but still there was some aversion and anger left. And so by his magic power, the anger even anger-eating demon transferred himself to the Tavatimsa Deva realm. And he was lucky enough to arrive there when King Saka was not in his palace. And so the demon, without hesitating, went up to the empty throne and seated himself on the throne. And there he sat quietly, waiting for things to happen. It didn't take long when the first devas started to enter the throne hall or the audience hall and they were shocked to see this demon. He also looked very ugly. And recovering from the first shock, they got uh, very upset and angry and they shouted, oh, you ugly demon, how can you dare to sit on Saka's throne? You're a rascal, you are, what a crime. You should be thrown headlong into hell, into a boiling cauldron, or you should be quartered alive. Get down from the throne, be gone, be gone, and so on. And so while the devas were getting more and more upset and angry, the demon was very pleased because from moment to moment he grew in size, in power, and in strength. All these angry uh, words were a feast for him. He got huge. And actually, uh, he had really grown so big that his head was almost touching the ceiling of the huge hall. And so then at one stage, King Saka returned and he entered the hall and King Saka had actually already some uh, realization of the Dhamma and so he wasn't shocked to see this huge and ugly demon sitting on his throne. So very slowly uh, he walked up to the demon and very politely approached him. King Saka even went down, kneeling on his right knee, and greeted the demon with very friendly words, saying, welcome, my friend. Please remain seated. I can take another chair. May I offer you the drink of hospitality? Our Amrita is not bad this year. Or maybe you, you like something stronger, like our uh, Vedic Soma. Um, actually, we also have uh, some lovely apple pie made from the imported apples uh, from the IMS uh, in Barrie, Massachusetts. <laughs> or what about having a gorgeous pizza made by our Italian divas? Or if you would like to have some entertainment, we have some beautiful uh, devas and very skilled musicians. So please tell me, what would you like? And so on. And as King Saka was uh, talking to the demon, 
the demon shrank bit by bit. With each friendly word, the demon got smaller. And finally, there was this tiny little ugly demon sitting on the throne. And then, with another friendly word of King Saka, the anger-eating demon dissolved and disappeared into nothing. So let's sit quietly for a few moments. <laughs> 